Flutter is a project from Google that is rebuilding user interface engineering from the ground up. Today, most engineering teams have dedicated engineering resources for web, iOS, and Android. These different platforms have their own design constraints, their own tool set, and their own programming languages. But each platform is merely building a user interface. Why should development across these three user surfaces be so different? This was the question that Eric Seidel was asking himself three years ago when he co-founded the Flutter project. The Flutter project had a few rough starts as the team tried to figure out exactly what layer of abstraction they were trying to provide. Around that time, React.js and React Native were growing in popularity. Seeing the React projects provided some data points and some inspiration. But Flutter ended up taking a lower-level approach to cross-platform app development by presenting a rendering layer and a runtime API that are interfacing with the hardware in the same way that OpenGL does. In today's show, Eric joins the show to explain how the Flutter project came to life and his lessons from starting an ambitious project that took several years to pick up steam. I enjoyed this episode because Flutter could have massive improvements for how quickly we can build applications. I also enjoyed it because Eric is a serious software engineer, and there are so many insights in this episode about computer science, software engineering, and project management. Before we get started, I want to mention that we're hiring. The jobs we're hiring for include writers, researchers, a videographer, and you can find all those jobs along with several other jobs at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs. Some of these jobs are part-time, some are full-time. And if you are hiring, you can also post on our job board. It's easy and it's free. You can just go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs and you can see how to post a job. And we'll be sharing some of those job postings with our listeners. Let's get on with the episode. All right, Eric Seidel, you are an engineering manager on the Flutter team at Google. Thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. Before you worked on Flutter, you worked on the Chrome team. You worked on Blink, which is a browser engine, I think you could describe it as, uh, similar to WebKit. How did that experience with Chrome shape your beliefs about web development in the future of the web? So yeah, I worked on Blink and WebKit for about a decade before getting involved with uh, Flutter uh, or before starting Flutter. How did it change my beliefs about the future of web development? I guess I'm a big believer in the web. I like the web a lot. It just moves really, really slowly. So eventually that sort of slowness caught up with me and, you know, it's it's really hard to change something when it has, you know, trillions of applications running on it. And so we went off to do a different thing. How would you contrast the advancement of the web to the advancement of mobile application platforms? Uh, again, it, it just moves slowly. The last, say, five years I worked on the web, we're all focused on mobile and making the web amazing on mobile. And yet I think still today there's a lot of desktop focus uh, on the web. And that's just hard. Whereas mobile platforms typically only work on mobile. And so they only care about devices that have a touch screen and have a battery and yeah, just a, a different set of constraints. What led you to founding or co-founding the Flutter project? It's all started with an experiment back when myself and a few of the other leads from Blink decided to take a somewhat radical experiment approach and slice and dice Chrome down and see how fast we could make it go. And so we allowed ourselves, uh, I think it was like a week or two, and we just tore Chrome apart 
and see how fast we could move on our benchmarks, allowing ourselves to break compatibility to the web. And the end result was we were 20 times faster on some of the benchmarks that we uh, cared about. And obviously the end product wasn't the web. It didn't you know, render all web pages, but it taught us that there was a lot of potential to do things better, faster if we uh, worked on something that was beyond the web. How did that train of thought lead to making a cross-platform mobile development experience? Hmm. So cross-platform wasn't necessarily really the goal so much as maybe portable or just being able to do beautiful, fast experiences wherever you know Google needed those experiences. And so we, I think, started with maybe that in mind. And then the, the cross-platform was just sort of a practical application of this, right? Right now, where are all the developers? Well, all the developers are on iOS and Android. And so we, we brought the system to iOS and Android because we saw problems to solve there. So was the train of thought this way? It was, we want to see how fast we can make some parts of Chrome because the cool thing about Chrome is that browsers run anywhere and that doesn't seem to be that doesn't seem to be a trend that's going to change anytime soon maybe you get an augmented reality interface some sort of browser is still going to run there so maybe if we're trying to make a user interface and a application platform let's just start with the web yeah i think we started with the web because that was what we knew there was also i think i had invested a decade of my life at this point in the web and I had made a lot of, I, I thought, really nice pieces of engineering that sometimes felt compromised or held back by the constraints. You know, some of the things that we found when we were digging was that the web pays enormous penalties for compatibility with 30-year-old web pages. And it's death by a thousand cuts. Uh, I remember one piece that I took out, like there's this really deep down in the web's rendering system, there's this if statement that only exists for like a few Israeli banks that use this um, encoding system that was like deprecated in 1989. And that kind of, oh, it still has to render this page that was created two decades ago. You know, that one if statement costs like 2% of text rendering speed. And you can imagine you remove a thousand of those and you get something really fast. So I think it was wanted to dig out the gold that we felt we had invested in the web platform over the, the previous decade of work. So this eventually led to the creation of Flutter. And I think people who are familiar with Flutter think of it as a way to make cross-platform mobile applications. The way you're describing it is something bigger. And I'd like to get into the, the bigger vision eventually, but let's just frame it right now as something that allows you to make iOS and Android apps from a single development experience. So we've had these different cross-platform ways of doing software development because of the differences between iOS and Android. What are those differences between iOS and Android that are so distinctive that cause us to have to make these somewhat hacky cross-platform development experiences? Oh, there's just lots of differences sort of at every level. At the maybe simplest layer, the UI toolkits, the way that you render pixels on the screen, are simply written in different languages. One uh, on iOS, it's written in Objective-C or now some Swift, I think. And on Android, it's written in, in, in Java. And so you then have to create an abstraction layer on top of that if you want to use those. That's one of the things that React Native, uh, you know, a big player in the space has done. And we just took a fundamentally different approach. We wrote a new UI toolkit that renders straight to the GL buffer, just a very different approach. What is the GL buffer? 
maybe that's imprecise terms. We render straight to OpenGL, which is a, a way to talk to GPUs. We also can render to Vulkan, which is a new modern way to render to GPUs. Basically, a, a way to flip the pixels on your device. Do OpenGL libraries run very performantly on both iOS and Android? Yeah, but you typically have to write to GL in C++. So like the, the way that many mobile games are written is straight to OpenGL for example. And then if those games are written largely in C++ or largely in C, they are then portable between iOS and Android. You see, you see this already. Okay. So for those games that are written in OpenGL, for example, they do have a write once, run anywhere type of experience for the developer, it sounds like. Correct. They do. The, the compromise there is that you are in the games world. So when you launch the game, you don't have any buttons, or at least they don't look like iOS buttons, and you don't have a drawer on Android. You have whatever the game's UI system is, and you know the game's quality of text, which may or may not be good. Whereas we took sort of a game-like architecture, but then we applied that to writing a user interface library. This is a more holistic question, but why is that important? Why is it important to convey the operating system level design decisions to the apps that run on that operating system? And some would argue that it's not important, but in the end, it's all really about matching user expectations, right? So when I'm a developer of my application, a lot of my job is to, you know, to provide value to the user. And some of that value to some set of users is looking and feeling like they expect. I think I was watching some presentation that you gave about Flutter. And, and the thing that you emphasized in the first demo that you gave was that the physics of just scrolling is something that is subtly different in iOS and Android. And when you break the physics of how scrolling on a mobile device works within an app like if you make an ios app uh and you you somehow break the scrolling experience either because you're in a game developed environment or a cross-platform developed environment it something feels wrong something feels broken exactly and that's exactly the existing so when you're trying to not have to write your application twice your choices are typically write your own physics you know, write your own whole stack in a, in a game perspective or sit on top of the existing iOS and Android stacks, you know, possibly through an abstraction. But writing your own physics is hard. The cross-platform tools that are historically uh, represented, whether we're talking about React Native or these things like uh, Accelerator, this other cross-platform tools, most of the time, the ones that I've seen use a JavaScript bridge, which is basically the cross-platform elements of the application are written in JavaScript. Can you describe the, the pros and cons of a JavaScript bridge? Maybe describe what a JavaScript bridge is? Yeah, so this isn't really my entire area of expertise, but um, my general understanding is that a JavaScript bridge is about exposing objects from one language into JavaScript. So for example, um, because iOS is mostly written in Objective-C, and say you would want to interface with some Objective-C object, um, say even just like the view, like a button, uh, you would need to expose that up into JavaScript in some way. And the way that that's done is, is via this bridge, I believe. And same thing for uh, Android. But there are some downsides to uh, having to deal with these cross-language. There's some you know slowness that can come as a result of having to bridge between languages. And in contrast, your 
cross-platform bindings are at the lower level, as you said, at the this the C++ rendering engine that's at the same level as OpenGL. So in any of these solutions, you're going to need to have some way to talk from you know your shared common language that you're sharing between platforms to the languages that the platforms are running themselves. You're going to need some bridging strategy. It's a question of where do you put it? And so for Flutter, we put this bridging strategy in sort of a, we push it out to the edges where it's less in the critical path. Whereas some other solutions where you're crossing the bridge many, many, many times per frame, many, many times in a short span of milliseconds. Whereas in in Flutter, we try to to push that to the edges where you you wouldn't have to cross these bridges as often. It kind of reminds me of WebAssembly where you have a really low level interpreter and i guess they just use llvm which is literally um you know the the low level virtual machine did you take any inspiration from the the webassembly project uh so webassembly is about how to run other languages on the web safely we don't run inside the web's container so flutter shares no code with the web we we started from a web code base but we these days don't share any code with the web and so we don't have that sort of security boundary. We don't we don't have to like worry about running arbitrary code safely or anything like that. So WebAssembly is largely an orthogonal project. I do think that WebAssembly is an interesting direction for the web, and we'll see where that plays out over the next coming years as browsers continue to adopt it. Yeah. Okay. Focusing on the Flutter world, I'm a little curious about this rendering engine that you had to build at the lower level between some Flutter representation and a graphics representation. What was the engineering requirement set for that really low-level bridge that you're describing? Yeah, so our runtime, our lowest levels that are all built in C++, again, stemmed from, initially, from Chrome and the web. We just cut away until we had the minimum set of things we needed. And again, now are are wholly separate. But our runtime consists of really only three pieces. One is we have a a CPU abstraction, the way that we run code on the the central processing unit of of, of your phone, uh, and that's Dart. And then we have another, which is the GPU abstraction for the graphical processing unit, and that is uh, Skia. That's the same graphics library that's used by Chrome and Android. And then the, the third part is we have a small bit of C++ code that is really hard to write and needs to run really fast, and that is the text layout code for like laying out lines of text. And that we took from Android, and that also exists in this bundle of code. Uh, and then we have a few other little odds and ends, but that's basically it. And uh, part of the principle was to put as little code here in that layer. So then the rest of the whole system is all in the same language that you write your application and thus under your control. Dart specifically, what is the benefit of using the Dart language? So there's a, a bunch of nice properties of Dart. We talked some about this on our, our website at our uh, Frequently Asked Questions. So one of the nice properties of Dart is that it has a really fast garbage collector. One of the choices that we made in Flutter was to have this reactive style system where it's very common to allocate uh, thousands of objects in a, if not tens of thousands of objects in a single frame, so in a span of a few milliseconds, and then immediately let go of those objects again. And there's a variety of ways to do that, but Dart having a generational garbage collector can handle uh, large volumes of short-lived objects very quickly. 
Dart also has some uh, really nice performance characteristics. It has an ahead-of-time compiled backend, which allows us to compile straight to native ARM code, allow us to achieve really fast startup uh, and really consistent performance. And Dart also has a nice focus on developer experience, uh, which really got along well with my team. Right. I've seen from your talks that developer experience is quite important to you in, in how you're architecting the tool set and you know, different ways that you can interact with your code as a Flutter developer. The generational garbage collector that you mentioned that's important because of the short-lived objects, is there something about modern application development, perhaps in the context of mobile development, or maybe it extends to the web as well, where you have large sets of short-lived objects? Or is this something that you feel has has always existed in applications? Oh, it's very new. Well, <laughs> I'm sure the computer science theorists would tell me that it dates back decades. Um, but the pattern seeing broad application at least came to my attention through this React.js pattern uh, of popularity. And Flutter has definitely was inspired early on by React.js. And so in that paradigm, you do tend to allocate lots and lots and lots of short-lived objects, and you need an efficient way to do that. And JavaScript has a a garbage collector that that can do this, and and Dart does as well. Okay, so these objects are getting defined and and this is like the i think in the in the react js world it's in the representation of the virtual dom tree and that dom tree is constantly getting refreshed and rebuilt and things are getting pruned and and changed and i guess these are the the objects that we're talking about in the the react js context well i can speak more intelligently about the flutter context in sure. in, in flutter the things that are short lived are, are the widget layer so Things below the widget layer, like like the the rendering layer, uh, have long lived objects, uh, which is more typical of what you say see on iOS or Android, where like you would instantiate a view on iOS or a view on Android, and that view would live for as long as that view is on screen. The difficulty with that approach is you have to deal with uh, the, the data flow is harder to reason about. So in a reactive style system, the data always flows one way. You always are regenerating your entire view from your data. Whereas in one of these older systems, these object observed pattern systems, you have to both explain during creation time of your view, how to set up your view, as well as to update time. Like every time your view changes and those two data paths, it can be just one more thing to, to, to keep in sync. And so people like this reactive pattern where you have the simple data flow, but it does create uh, some complexity for the, the framework authors and the, and the runtime authors to, to make something like that fast. Let's go through these layers of Flutter. We've pretty much laid out what the lowest layer is like. This is the runtime layer. The runtime API has an interface with the operating system. And as I understand, it's through this rendering layer that uh, is compatible with OpenGL. I, I don't know. Is there anything more you want to say about the interface between the runtime API and the operating system? How about I just sort of lay you through uh, an oral version of our layer diagram? Sure, please. So at the lowest layer of Flutter, there is this ball of C++ that we've talked a little bit about now, the, the runtime. And it does need to talk out to the operating system. And it, it does that through some pretty limited limited ways. It's mostly about uh, putting graphics on the screen. So it needs to talk out OpenGL, and it knows how to talk to some accessibility APIs, and it knows how to talk to a little bit of file system I.O. and some network I.O. out the bottom. Out the top, it provides an, an API to the Dart code, 
to access those system. And then the whole rest of the Flutter system is all written up in Dart. And it too is then layered. So there's this very low level layer, which is called the bindings layer, which mostly is about um, sort of initial setup, et cetera. And then on top of that, there's, there's well, I'm probably skipping around a little bit here, but then there's a, there's a rendering layer, which is important to think about. And the rendering layer is like a typical view model. So these are long lived objects that the system generally manages for you. On top of that, then, is the is maybe the widget layer. The widget layer is where we have this sort of reactive pattern. The widgets are typically how you interface with Flutter. So you would just create a whole tree of widgets for the one frame that you're trying to create. And every time you're putting up a new frame in your application, you're creating a whole new tree of widgets. And then on top of that widgets layer, we have then a variety of more opinionated layers that exist to express someone's design aesthetic, such as, say, material design. We have a material layer, which is Google's design aesthetic. And then we also have a Cupertino layer for expressing the iOS design aesthetic. So the rendering layer, this is, I believe you said this is where the objects are repeatedly created and and thrown out in every frame. Is that right? The widget objects? Sorry, the widgets sit on top of the rendering and, and those are short-lived objects. Right, so okay. These, you so can the, think of them like templates. You say, make my view look like this. Okay, the rendering layer is below the widget layer. The rendering layer is for longer-lived objects, right? Correct. So the rendering layer handles things like layout and painting. There's also other things like text editing is implemented up in here, gestures, animations. The rendering layer is, is a typical UI framework. It's just then we also have then an additional layer on top of that typical UI framework. The widget layer, the short-lived ephemeral objects that's on top of this rendering layer, this is a composition-based way of doing object management. You, you encourage extreme composition over inheritance. Explain what composition is. Yeah, so I could explain it maybe through an example. Okay. So uh, it's very typical in systems to have a container class. On the web, this is a div, or on iOS, I guess it's an NS view or uh, on Android view. And sort of in this sort of container class, it's typically the way you draw a box. And if you want to participate in the system, you inherit from one of these containers. So on the web, you you would maybe, if you're doing custom elements, you might, you know, subclass div. Um, and then along with it, you get all of the various things that you can do with a div. That's not typically how we design things in Flutter. It's sort of the, the other way around. If you look at container in Flutter, it is itself composed of 10 different smaller classes. And so instead of inheriting from container, you would just use one of the smaller classes. Uh, or you could even use container yourself, but it's this... Um, that you compose these various objects together as opposed to you being one of these objects. Can you describe a few more examples of widgets that we might define in an application? One example that we give sometimes is that, say, your designer wants to have a, a custom button. And so you might implement your own custom button to implement your own designer's look and feel or their custom animations. That's a very normal thing to do in Flutter. You also, of course, can, can use the buttons that we provide out of the box, but it's a very normal thing to compose a new button out of the various pieces that build up other buttons. All of these different layers that we've talked about, the opinion layer, layer at the top, and then the widget layer, and then the rendering layer, and then the runtime API at the bottom, all of these are designed to be configurable and and tinkerable. Would the average developer want to tinker with all of these different layers? Where is the average developer working? 
Yeah, I, I don't know exactly who the average developer is, but I think that, that many developers would just work at the highest opinionated layers and would just take a material button and put it next to a material text box and you know use a gesture detector to detect a swipe, add a scaffold and an app bar. But it's a design choice of the system that you can change any aspect. You can access any layer and you can fork the whole thing. And then here again through some of the magic of Dart, Dart has what's called a tree shaking compiler where when Dart goes to compile your application, it only includes the bits that you use. So all of our massive framework is not included in your final application, only the the bits that you actually touched. Let's zoom out from the layers to the developer experience. If I'm a developer that's actually just, I just want to write a Flutter application. I think your launch application or the, the application that you've presented as an example in, in some of your talks, which is the Hamilton application, like it, the Hamilton musical, you have there's an app for that, and it's created in Flutter. And I think this is a, a great example of something that people would want to make cross-platform. This is not the type of app that people should have to write two distinctive apps for. But I think it's a good example. But if we're trying to make an app like that, the developer experience on Flutter is is optimized. So one aspect of Flutter that you've emphasized is hot reload. What is hot reload and why is that important in cross-platform development? Yeah, so one of our founding ideas is just trying to make the whole developer experience better, uh, and hot reload is a part of that. Uh, Hot reload is one of the technologies we developed along with working with the Dart team, where the end effect for, for a user is that you type your code in your Flutter app, you hit save, And then a second later, or sometimes less than, the new running code is updated on your application running on your phone. And this provides for a very nice developer experience where you can, as some say, paint your app to life. That you just sort of tweak with a little bit here and you tweak with a little bit there. And this is really a a visual thing. And I would encourage you to go to our flutter.io website and see it for yourself. But it changes the way you do development when your cycle times are not measured in minutes uh, or tens of minutes from when you make a change to compile to see it on your phone, but rather in milliseconds. Talked about hot reload as as being kind of a a hard thing to build. What are the technical difficulties or the technical trade-offs that you make in developing a hot reload system? Yeah, I think a lot of what makes many of the things that Flutter does, but including Hot Reload, hard is the coordination between all the various systems and layers. One of the things that's neat about Flutter is that we wrote the whole system. You know, one team wrote the whole system, which means that, you know, to make a really nice Hot Reload experience, it's not just about having a runtime that supports injecting new code, which we do, and and that itself was hard, Um, but you also then have to then teach the rest of the system that a thing called hot reload exists and that there needs to be some way to communicate to the rest of the system, oh, hey, don't throw away the state of the application, just redraw the entire screen. Don't change where it's navigating, you know, don't change where you are in the application, just repaint where you are, even though you're running wholly new code. And so the complexities around I think many parts of Flutter, but hot reload included, is around the coordination between all of the pieces of the system. Let's say I am developing the Hamilton app or some other simple app for a movie. What's the tool chain? What's the developer experience for working with Flutter? 
Yeah, so we find that most folks working with Flutter work in one of our two or three supported IDEs, the big ones being Android Studio, IntelliJ, and Visual Studio Code. And the IDEs provide nice menu items and hooks and buttons to do all the common tasks. The developer experience sort of once you get going, once you've, you know, had the template generated for you, once you've hit the run button, is you, again, as described, you just edit the code, you hit save, and it just appears on your emulator or on your phone. And you can, of course, debug from from these environments. Others choose a, a different developer experience, like many of the folks that I work with, you know, here at Google, they choose to use Vim or Emacs or, you know, something that doesn't have a GUI interface, and they use Flutter's command line tools, uh, which also provide a bunch of nice developer experience affordances where we try to abstract away the differences between Android and iOS, between Android Studio and Xcode, where we have nice tools to help with install, we have nice tools to help with launching emulators, etc. If... I am writing my app in Flutter. Do I ever need to duck down into the native iOS or Android code? So it's very much a founding principle of Flutter that anything the hardware can do, you should be able to do. So it always should be possible. We find that many people, say the average developer, doesn't need to do that because as our community, as our ecosystem continues to grow, there's lots and lots of plugins, our packages site, where you can download and someone has already written nice Dart wrappers around, say, Firebase or Sentry crash reporting or you know, around the accelerometer or around the camera, around playing video. But it always is and always should be possible for you to ask your iOS dev or, you know, put on your iOS hat and and dip in and write some Objective-C or dip in and write some Swift if you need to. And if I do write some Swift in the iOS world, where is the point at which the Swift code gets inserted and how is it interfacing with the Flutter side of things? Uh, so Flutter runs all of its code on a separate thread from the OS from the rest of the of the UI system. And so anytime you're talking in Swift code, it's typically on a different thread. And so the way you communicate then is through this simple JSON, although you can send any kind of serialization you want, but simple typically JSON protocol between say the Flutter code in Dart and Swift code. It's kind of like talking to a to a web backend is a typical way to do it. That's pretty cool. What are the advantages of of that approach? Or maybe you could like describe a, a simple message that I might need to send from my Flutter code to a native iOS piece. Yeah, so we have a bunch of examples again on our, on our website about how to write plugins and how to bundle them up into packages. But a very simple one might just be to read the accelerometer on the device. And so you would write a small bit of of iOS code that we we have some systems in place to help um, sort of automatically compile for you and automatically include in your app for you. But you'd write a small amount of iOS code that would know how to read the accelerometer and then know how to respond to the JSON, incoming JSON message, and you know reply with a JSON response. As though you were writing, again, a little web server in uh, Objective-C that then talked to the other side, maybe the client that's in Dart. How do you handle, maybe this isn't a hard problem, but the fragmentation here, because obviously iOS operating systems are not exactly the same as Android operating systems, so there's going to be specific functionality to the specific platforms. Do you have like switch statements, or is there some awareness within the app of what the 
operating system is running on and some ability to switch between functionality based on the operating system. How do you handle the cross-platform MISM in the application you're writing itself? Well, certainly. So uh, we certainly expose the the platform that you're running on, and it's something that the framework already leverages some for you in terms of doing things like the physics we were talking about earlier, right? To know to to use the Cupertino physics, the iOS physics, or the Mountain View physics, the the Android physics, to for you, and similarly for some of the other aspects of the look and feel. But you also can access that yourself and change your behavior accordingly. In terms of accessing very divergent um, APIs, uh, that's typically done again at the plugin level, and we see people who write plugins that are sometimes only designed for one platform. Like there's a popular plugin uh, called Android Intense that just knows how to send Android Intense. And obviously you would only call that plugin from the Android side of your application. Similarly though, there's a, there's a share plugin where the author of the share plugin took the time to write sort of a least common denominator abstraction around the various share APIs. They didn't have to do that, but that was the, the choice that they made. And so I guess our approach here is to provide you the tools and help the plugin ecosystem to to grow to answer all of the needs. But we don't legislate a, a only least common denominator approach, nor do we only provide bindings for one system. What are some other tools in the developer experience? Some of my favorites are we have some help with installation. It can be really somewhat complicated to get all of Android Studio and all of Xcode and all of the various dependencies installed. And so we have a a Flutter doctor, which will help diagnose your system and help you install any missing dependencies. I think that's really worked pretty nicely. Um, We also, again, abstract away on top of Android and and Android Studio and and Xcode, particularly for the building and for the communicating with the device, including we recently added an emulators functionality for helping with, with launching emulators from the command line. I should note that all of our tooling at, at any layer, again, follows this layering paradigm. And so the command line tool is sort of the, the lowest layer of our tooling, and all of our other tools sit on top of it. So that allows us to have all of the tools in all of the various supported editors. All right. This is an ambitious project, and I really want to know how you managed it, because it's gone on for about three years. You got it started, you got it off the ground, you scaled it up to a big enough team to really get it rolling, and and now it's at the point where it's got adoption and you've got a user base and a high-volume open-source project. What has been your biggest set of learnings around how to manage a team like this from the three years that you've been building the Flutter project? Wow. (laughs) Big question. I would say two things that have stood out for me. One is a reaction. Prior to coming to Google, I had a small startup that failed. Uh, And one of the reasons why we failed was that we didn't talk to our customers. And so one of the things that has been very ingrained in the Flutter project from the very, very beginning was providing value to users, you know, immediately, yesterday, and to talk to our customers. So there's that aspect to it. And I think another part is is maybe embedded in Google's culture, but also I, I try in Flutter's culture to just to just set people up to succeed. There's a lot of really smart people in this world and just make a space where they can do important things and and be set up to succeed. What's the responsibility of a manager in setting up people for success, setting up people that are are working under your management? There's some amount of shielding people from distractions. There's just the administrative bits of, you know, make sure you take care of them having the right desks and 
getting enough funds and there's there's that aspect to it. There's checking in with people regularly, making sure that they're happy and that they feel aligned and feel communicated, you know, with and that they have a voice. Yeah, it's just a lot of uh, taking care of people. So this project was started around the time when what angular one was out i think like in terms of other frameworks although i guess angular one is a web framework what were the other teams that you were interfacing with in 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 the early days when you were sort of architecting the project and trying to figure out what exactly you were working on so i think one of the earliest teams we had contact with was the fuchsia team they were a very early consumer of flutter which was very helpful to us We did have some amount of sort of head down, helmets on, just trying to find a set of technology that really worked. There there was this long phase of technological exploration where we restarted the project basically three times. And then I think once we got out of that and realized that we were building something cross-platform, we had it working on iOS, then there was this long phase of talking to customers and making sure that we had built something that provided them value. And this caused us to rotate to focusing internally on Google for maybe a year uh, to find that first Google customer and then also to work a ton on developer experience because we found very early on in talking to developers that that was something that provided them a lot of value more than the cross-platform more than the custom UI just simply making their iterations so nice. Why did you have to restart the project three times? So it was real. it was technological restart I'm not really a, a people restart it was, we again started from Chrome's code base and we started with a something that looked a lot like HTML and we were just trying to make a fast HTML and then we threw that out and we made something that started from JavaScript directly and was building a custom elements like solution and manipulating the DOM and then we threw away the DOM and tried to render everything straight to the canvas basically element and then we just we kept ripping things apart, and, and then we eventually had to change languages for a variety of reasons, uh, and changed away from JavaScript. So that was another restart. And then we changed off of a around that same time we changed off of being an object observe style pattern to a, a reactive style pattern. So yeah, it's just we we did a bunch of technological learning. Of we had this gold that we knew was buried inside the system, and just how to put it together in a in a way that would provide value to others. That was the long, the challenge. How did you keep your focus and your your sense of confidence in the project as you were shifting between these different framings of, of what you were working? Because it sounds like early on you had, there was a set of things you knew, and there was also a set of things that you knew that you didn't know. And you were really trying to figure out like, what am I working on? And who am I building it for? You said, you know, you were talking to customers early on, but it also sounds like you weren't exactly sure what your target customer would even look like. Yeah, we saw so much value for a better way to put pixels on the screen, again, across a wider context than just iOS and Android, but again, that's where we ended up. How did we maintain focus? We just knew there was value here because we'd worked on that for a decade uh, and we had a very small team for a long time and that helped us to stay focused and to remain you know, agile, as they say. Uh, because we could rewrite the code base because it was only a, a you know a handful of people. And so it sounds like this was really a fundamentals perspective of how do we build the best set of cross-platform user interfaces. That was the focus. It was not 
how do we build a good set of user interfaces for the common context right now, like based on the Android iOS duality? It's more like, what are the fundamentals of making a user interface? Exactly. I would remove the word cross-platform from your original statement, but exactly. Like we were, how do you build the best way to develop? And we focused on mobile. So, you know, for mobile, whether it's for one platform, whether it's for many platforms, whether it's for today's platforms or platforms 10 years from now, we tried to have a fundamental shift in, in development and took a very long view. I mean, the tech lead for our project, his previous last decade was on redesigning the web for HTML5. And so like he takes a very long view. I take a very long view. And this is a very long, you know, targeted project. And you had to be ready for the world of augmented reality and the world of virtual reality as well. Did you have any, were there some foundational conversations with people who are more familiar with the bottlenecks in those development processes or the, you know, the kinds of processors that those kinds of systems are going to need when you were trying to architect what the system would look like and what the insertion point was for your runtime API, for example? We haven't spent a lot of time um, looking or talking about VR or AR. I guess it's just based off the fundamental idea that there are lots of surfaces in the world that need 2D graphics. And my experience from working on the web is that all of these many, many surfaces, they have really poor choices for how to put those graphics up. They have existing, you know, cross-platform frameworks of variety, which does not include, for example, React Native, because like some of these these systems, you know, these devices, these refrigerators or whatever, they don't have a native UI toolkit. They need a UI toolkit. So I think that was the original guiding light. And again, we we pivoted from that to providing value to use to developers today. But again, as we talked about, the larger vision is that like, why not completely reboot development for any screen? I don't know how much you could talk about Fuchsia, but is that what Fuchsia is kind of trying to do for the operating system world? They're trying to think of what happens if we just rethink, like let's even throw out Linux, let's just rethink how the operating system works. I can't really talk about Fuchsia. It's not really mine to talk about. I do know that there's a, a lot of code that's in the public and there's a lot of news articles. So I would direct your listeners there. <laughs> I, yeah, I've, I've looked at those news articles and I've looked a little bit at the code. It's a bit like walking through uh, an alien civilization and trying to decipher what the aliens are working on. But yeah, I don't know. Um, you Maybe somebody in the audience or if you know somebody on the Fuchsia team who could talk to me at their limited <laughs> province, then whatever, we can talk about that. What's in the future? What are you excited about that is being worked on in the Flutter project right now? Oh man, so much. So we're, our focus right now is on getting to our first stable release. We have been used inside Google for production applications and obviously outside Google for production applications for quite some time now. But, you know, we haven't done all of the polish that we would like to do. And so we're really focused on that last stretch of polish to get to our first stable release so that we're releasing stable releases on a regular cadence, just like we release betas today. Some big stuff that we're working on for that is we're continuing to always work on performance um, because that's very important to us. Uh, We're working a bunch on making it really easy to add Flutter to your existing app because we know that there are, you know, millions of devs literally who have existing apps and they don't necessarily want to do a full rewrite, but they might want to play with Flutter. Um, So we're working on that a bunch. Uh, And we're also working to continue to, to improve our viability to iOS focused devs. 
we have had a lot of Android-focused devs that we've worked with inside Google for many years, and, and you see that, I think, in our system that we've done a lot to build out material design, and we've done less work to build out the iOS-specific affordances, and, and we're talking to a lot of devs right now to, to do that. The surface area of Flutter today, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but it doesn't extend to the web, right? I mean, a Flutter developer is developing for mobile applications. Is that right? That is correct. We focus on mobile. Flutter is written in Dart, and Dart as a language is very flexible and compiles to many formats, including JavaScript. You can transpile Dart to JavaScript. Um, That's actually how Dart has been widely, widely used inside Google for major projects like AdWords and AdSense for many years. But Flutter itself does not transpile to the web right now, and there have been a variety of people publicly making explorations with that, but nothing that my team is working on. Yeah, so I guess you just wanted to solve the harder bit first, right? Because it sounds like going to the web is probably probably going to be easier. Well, you bring me back, or that that reminds me then to your early question about management. I do think that maybe there was a third thing, which was about focus. And we spend a lot of time talking about focus. And every time we bring up something new to do, several of my team are very good at saying, okay, if we do that, what are we not going to do? Because the reality is, you know, the, the facts on the ground, the truth is that you just only have so many people and you only have so much time. And so we try real hard to focus. Totally. And that has been an overriding uh, theme of people that, you know, people that come on this show, whether they're working on a company or they're working on a team or they're working on a project by themselves, that ability to focus, it seems to be a characteristic of engineers or creative types that, you know, it's just the the expanse of things that you could work on that feel adjacent to what you are working on is so great, but you must focus on that one thing or that small set of things. So you do have an open source community to, I guess, leverage or throw out ideas to. And, you know, you, you can, you can, if you throw out an idea, hopefully, you know, maybe somebody runs with it. What's the trick to the right balance between maintaining focus and also presenting to the world that you have a maintained sense of focus, but also conveying the ambition and, and presenting those ideas and kind of being able to say, Hey, you know, here's a thing. If somebody out there wants to work on it, you know, you could, you could go for it. Yeah, I don't know if there's a one, you know, quick trick. We do very much have an open source culture. Many of my engineers sit on our public chat, you know, many engineers answer questions regularly on Stack Overflow. We very much try to engage with our community. We have what I would describe as a relatively early, you know, stage open source project. We have a couple hundred contributors total in terms of all time. I would like to see that grow significantly. Again, my biases come from having worked on Chrome, which had had thousands of people contribute over the years. And so, so yeah, I think that as we expand to a larger community, we will have to do more around communicating a longer-term vision to that community and making sure that you know people agree. But right now, it mostly consists of people at Google where we have those those conversations on a regular basis about what we're focused on. Okay, last question, just to, just to return to this management point for a little bit more. The management of the project has changed, I'm sure, as you've scaled up. How has the team structure changed and how do you kind of allocate tasks to different teams or is it is it self-managing? Is it, and, you know, you've got these different layers. How do you allocate the engineering resources? Yeah, so Google has long had a very flat management structure, which I have liked. So most 
contributors to Flutter report directly to me. The is the reality of that, you know, Google also being a distributed company, there are a variety of teams in other offices. And so there there are other managers on the Flutter project. But yeah, it, it is mostly as you describe uh, sort of a a self-management. You know, my job is to make sure that the the vision and the the direction is clear and that the communication is happening throughout the organization. But then who exactly does what is more of a a self-management. One of the things that we do, we did institute very early on uh, as part of being a distributed team is that we have daily stand-ups that exist for exactly five minutes. Um, It's a hard stop. (laughs) And as the team has grown, that that room has gotten very full, but we still manage to get through everyone. I think that most people on the team have found those valuable in terms of just a high-level communication. It's optional. Not everybody comes, but a lot of people do. That's a new one. That's a cool trick hard stop five minutes yeah we just didn't i think there again you know it's so it's always the context of, of where things come from right but i think some of that came because there was a, a large team who had stand-ups uh nearby us and they seemed to last for like an hour and <laughs> yeah. that just didn't make any sense so we instituted a hard stop i've been at that stand-up before <laughs> <laughs> eric thanks for coming on the show it's been really great talking to you and i am inspired by flutter i'm inspired by your long-term vision and your ability to execute on it with considerable focus and upfront work for three years and i think you're reaping the fruits of your labor right now so congratulations and i look forward to covering it more thanks for having me on wow